This is the Speckled Bees. I'm Spencer, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Northern Virginia speech and language pathologist, also known as an SLP, Kim Heide. And for a bonus, she's also my mother. Hi. <laughs> so Kim Heide is here to talk with us today about her role as a speech and language pathologist. She, well, first off, can you sum up for us what is a speech therapist? What, just tell us what that is. So a speech therapist is a speech pathologist. Really, the only distinction is probably setting of where you are. So generally, if you're in a hospital setting or private practice setting, you do more diagnostic work. Interesting. So you're more aptly to be referred to as a speech pathologist. If you're in the school setting, you're referred to as a speech therapist because you do very little diagnostic work. Interesting. Huh. And could you give us an overview of your work history? Because I believe you've worked in a hospital setting as well as the school setting. So you have, you've dabbled in both of those, those lines. Yep. So I was a pre-med major and thought for sure I was going to become a doctor, not a pediatrician, but a doctor. Didn't, wasn't quite sure in what. Um, and then I had a fork in the road ended up not going down that road, looked for something medical in people and found speech pathology and thought I would never leave the medical setting. Worked 13 years in a hospital with head and neck cancer. I ran an EQ unit, which is a neonatal intensive care unit for babies. I ran a stroke unit, uh, worked at three or four different hospitals and an outpatient clinic and loved every moment of it. I want to touch on those two. Can you explain real quickly where speech pathology came into neonatal? How did that apply? So we generally got the types of referrals we got were the babies that were either failure to thrive, which Mm -hmm. means they weren't nursing well and therefore not gaining weight or cleft palate, cleft lip. Gotcha. And that could jump me to your work with, um, Operation Smile when you lived in Asia. Can you please explain that work? So we had moved to the Philippines and the Philippines has a high preponderance of cleft lip, cleft palate for several reasons. It's it's a condition that's prevalent in poor countries. And just to elaborate for anybody who doesn't know, can you explain what a cleft lip or cleft palate is? Sure. It's, um, it's actually really fascinating. It's one of my favorite topics. So your, um, I'm not going to give you the technical term, this part right here, this part right here. He's indicating to the, the, the line above your, above your lip leading to your nose. We'll include diagrams in the uh, spot notes for this episode. Yep. And your frenum which is under your tongue, the piece of tissue under your tongue is all connected because when around 12 to 16 weeks gestation in your mom's tummy, it all sits as shelves out to the side Hmm. and it comes to the midline and it fuses. Hmm. So if there's a break in any of that fusion, you end up with a hole. And you know how often this occurs in the, in a first world country, not very often. Because the conditions that it occurs upon is uh, genetic and low nutrition. And that's pretty much it. Wow. So, so 
first world country, it's rare for it to occur. Uh, third world countries or developing countries, it's very common because education is low. Mm. Hereditary is a huge factor and poor nutrition is another huge factor. Oh, wow. So when you see somebody with a cleft chin, mm. that's actually an imperfection. <laughs> we know somebody. <laughs> we know several people like that. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't realize it fell. In, I mean, that makes sense that it fell on the same, um, just a little side divot. Does that include people that have the little indent in their nose as well? Yes. Ah, yeah. interesting. Okay. That's so yeah. cute. Now, whenever I see somebody that looks so like that. Your palate is the roof of your mouth. It's a technical right. term for the roof of your mouth. And you have a hard palate and you have a soft palate and the soft palate ends with that little thing that dangles in the back of your throat. Hmm. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. Learning so much about the mouth. And we have to make you like a second segment just about the mouth and the features that go behind this. Uh, and back to your neonatal in regards to cleft palates, does this affect latching issues with, with babies? As Very well? much so. Very huh. much so. Interesting. So um, most people don't realize this, but your tongue is meant to be sitting on the roof of your mouth 24-7, obviously when you're not eating or speaking. Hmm. So if it's not up there. And sometimes that's due to a short frenum, the tissue underneath your tongue. Then you also have difficulty breastfeeding. I feel like everybody listening right now is currently seeing if their tongue is sitting on the roof of their mouth. So that is so, so curious. So it, it is interesting because everybody always asks me what age group I work with. And I always answer birth to death. Mm. Oh, wow. That's a great answer. <laughs> birth to death. It's a macabre answer, a really good one. So, and and so when you worked with Operation Smile and you were focusing on these cleft palates, jumping back to that point, because it's just so many intertwining aspects of your career, what did you do besides the speech pathology? Was there another side of Operation Smile? So there were several pieces that I did. One of them was on the international missions. Um I organized with a contact in America to bring international missions over to the remote islands. The Philippines has 14,000 islands. So that was part of my job. The other job was we did local missions about one a month. And um, that was our job was one month. Our job was to screen um, patients you know, a lot of factors go into whether you can even do surgery on somebody with cleft lip, cleft palate. Uh, the average age in America for surgical uh, repair is less than six weeks old. Mm, they, you have up to 17 surgeries by the time you're five years of age. It depends on the, the, the size of the cleft and, and the depth of the cleft. Holy in my. a developing country, the average age is eight years old. Wow. So they're spending eight years of their life with a cleft palate. With a cleft palate. And think about how much you can't eat. Right, right. You don't and have the roof of your mouth. So or how speech. much, or, or speak. Or, so how, how much speech are you working on with these children? How much? Zero. 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 At, the, oh. at the point that we meet them, their parents are handing them over to us to make them look normal. Gotcha. And that's the beginning, because once we get them to uh, to the point of normality, then we can then start sending them to school. Wow. So, And I assume the healing process is much longer with these older children than it is with the infants due to. Well, so that's also another factor. 
the most children in a developing country don't get surgery until around eight years of age, but it's almost impossible to do it past 12 years of age unless you have a donor and you can go into a proper hospital and have blood transfusions because your blood supply, people don't realize your blood supply takes a huge turn in your early teens between 12 and 16 years of age. I do not know that. Too much blood lost. Oh, wow. If if they did it after that age. So, you know, sometimes you had the heartbreaking job of, of saying, you know, we, we can't, we can't do the surgery and on a remote mission, but we would then go out of our way to try to find a donor that could fund. That's an amazing job. How did you stumble upon Operation Smile? How did that come about? Oh, I volunteered when I was in college. I went Papua New Guinea, my very first time. And it was, they couldn't afford uh, for students to have insurance. So we literally touched down for 14 hours and then flew back out that evening. Wow. And I was hooked from that point on and knew I always wanted to do it. Um, It's, it's a complete volunteer organization. So when we moved to the Philippines, that, that was the first thing I sought out was any help. Huh. And was it specifically in the Philippines or did you touch it in the other countries while you were in that area? Specifically in the Philippines. Philippines. Yeah. That's amazing. Have you ever tried to do any operation smile work here in the U S touching out from the U S or two different just fun. Ah, yeah. That's amazing though. So I've made, I've made some really long lasting friends over the years from the different missions. Oh, that's fantastic. I feel like a lot of people listening are going to be intrigued and looking into operation smile now and how they can. And there's an out. easy way, there's an easy way to contribute every year. Um, one of the things I do is I donate money in the name of people I'm giving presents to oh. and hang it on the Christmas tree with a candy cane. That's doesn't so- have to be a lot of money listening who's a little last minute in their donations for the year this is a nice option i love that it is, it is. oh it's, are there any other helping. organizations or charities in relation to speech pathology speech therapy that you'd like to shout out right now just in coincidence with this point there's so many okay <laughs> there's so many i mean you know the dyslexia institute um the stroke rehab institutes they have there's plenty of great ones in the country. Um, there are so many, the, um, autism, um, there's been a lot of progress in that as well. So it's, I think the most wonderful thing about going into private practice is I get a smattering of different disabilities and I'm constantly changing hats all day long. So that's true. I'm trying to think what we have our, our giving advent calendar is our big push for this month. We just started it today. Oh, and I, it. Yeah, cool. it's been fun so far. So today was a buy do it. Tomorrow's very um, easy. It's supposed to be like one they can do. It's, it's hug somebody that you love, but we have others coming up that are like make an effort to donate to a charity that you believe in, do something that makes you feel like you're giving an effort in. So it's self-care and community care. So we're trying to you would get a little more involved with that. Okay. You talked about the passions that led you into it as a pre-med student. You talked about, which leads me to ask, what steps do you have to take to become a speech therapist? It's actually one of the most, people are deterred once they hear, you have to have a master's degree. Interesting. 
you cannot practice without a master's degree. And, um, huh. and then you have to have a one-year residency. Oh, wow. So it is quite a lengthy step process compared to most therapeutical fields. So yeah. and, and how long is the master's program at average? Two years. Two years. Okay. So I know we're going to have some. You're committed, you're committed for six at minimum. Six. Oh my gosh. So it's if two years at the master's. And one year residency of the residency, right? It's seven. Wow. Seven total. And then, so those last, and so then four years of college, that's amazing. And am I wrong in saying that after you leave your residency, you do have to find a, a clinic that would work with you or a group that would. You have to find a job. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and you know, there, there are, I think one of the biggest attractions to this field is it is primarily women mm. or great speakers, right? Uh, primarily okay. women. Well said. <laughs> but the other part about it is uh, that it's incredibly flexible. Mm. I so can only if you, imagine. If you had children and you wanted to work in the schools, you could have, you know, summers off and whatnot with them. Well, Let's touch back on that real quick. Let's touch on your work in the school systems, because that is the thing that you've really focused your attentions in on. Yep. Worked in a local school system for 10 years. 10 years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So to anybody exactly listening, this is a great appeal of it is hospital setting, school settings. But please go on. Uh, You could also work in a nursing home. Mm. You could also work in a rehab center which is for primarily stroke or head injury, uh, you could become a reading specialist. Oh, interesting. You, you can be uh, working with students primarily at a specialized school for reading disabilities. And uh, something that I've done recently in the last five years is I worked with a local university to develop a program for students with autism. Oh, wow. What is this program called? What is it focusing on? The Mason Autism Support Initiative. And its whole focus was to admit students that got into college on their own accord, either through Hmm. SAT exams or through um, uh, an associate's degree and transferred in. That's fantastic. it, It is a really good program and it's grown immensely. So if any of our listeners right now, especially those who are locally based are as enthralled as I am and are engaged in Kim Heide's work, uh, I recommend that you go check out her website and look at her current job and career, which is owning and practicing at the therapist group, McLean Speech and Language Services. You went in, you did your residency, you spent years working in a hospital setting, jumped into a school setting, and now you work in your own practice. And I'm assuming you employ many women that have gone through these same steps as you have. Do you have any? I do. I I have six therapists. Okay. uh, Two part-time. And what's an even added bonus is our office manager had two of her three children at the practice. So it's really a family affair. <laughs> it really is. It's nice. This is kind of a tough question. What is the difference between what you do and an occupational therapist? So there's a fine line. Uh, it, when I worked in the hospital setting, the, the rule of thumb was that the physical therapist worked waist down 
occupational <laughs> worked waist up to neck and speech pathologists worked neck up. That's so odd. <laughs> it is a really odd distinction. However, uh, there are plenty of very talented occupational therapists that work with feeding disorders that work uh, with sequencing memory, all the skills that we would work with uh, patients with strokes or memory or head injury. So I don't think as long as the qualifications are there, I don't think you need to classify one discipline from the other. You just need to make sure that they have the experience. 15 years. So I haven't met that many occupational therapists that do similar things than us. There's usually a distinction, but I have met some. That follow along. Well, so here's a, here's a good question then better than asking what's the difference between you and an occupational therapist. That answer was fantastic. What other therapists work most closely with you coincide with your field at the closest level besides OTs, PTs, who do you talk with the most? What other professionals do you talk with? Uh, Social workers. Social workers. Interesting. Yeah. Knowing the background a lot, uh, especially if we're discharging a patient home, whether it's a stroke, head injury, memory, anything like that will help us plan what goes forward. If we have a student that is uh, cognitively disabled or physically disabled, again, knowing what they want to do later, whether it's work full time, whether it's being a, a supported program, helps us know how far to push them hmm. or to model their program and then also get them involved. So if they tell us they want to be the manager of a basketball team, you know, the first thing we're asking them is what skills do you need to do that? Right. So, you know, it's a client um, coordinated goal oriented field. I find it uh, funny that you use that terminology because I, I did a bit of research leading up to this interview because I, I obviously know the, the skivvies and the outlines of your job, but the deeper depths are still lost upon me. And tons of articles that come up uh, regarding if you're getting into speech pathology with your child, what questions should you be asking? And it's always, what goals are we aiming towards and how can we achieve those goals with our speech pathologists? And it's, it's very, a very goal oriented therapy group. I I love that. It is, it is very goal oriented. And in fact, uh, we do what we call action testing probably (laughs) once a month with every client we have. Because if you're doing an action testing and they're not making progress, then it's time you morph what you're doing. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Like adjustment and and going back and forth. I I love that. It's very, and that way it kind of sounds like it's like the, as you said, the neck up of physical and occupational, because same difference. It's the physicality and what are you working towards? Absolutely love that. Uh, Well, I wanted to speak with you today specifically to discuss the services you provide in relation to childhood development, which I know, uh, what percentage of your clients do you estimate are children or adolescents? I would say 65 to 70%. Quite a majority of them. That's impressive. And 
when I was titling this episode, and we're just going to call it the interview with Kim Heide, our speech pathologist, speech and language pathologist, SLP. I wanted to speak with you and call this why providing services for your child is the greatest gift this season. Would you agree with this title? And if so, why do you find it essential to provide children with appropriate speech and language services? Well, it's, you know, that's, we speak for Loaded. everything, right? <laughs> right? So um, if your child is unable to communicate, that not only affects their simple storytelling ability, but also their social skills. Right. Which I is just touched on one of my questions later. <laughs> a, a huge thing. The other thing that it impacts significantly, and most people don't realize this, is language is the basis to reading. So if your child is delayed in any language capacity, whether that be uh, speaking articulation or language thought provoking, formulating sentences, words, whatever it is, it there's a high preponderance that show up in reading disabilities as a knock on effect. Hmm. And it doesn't mean that they'll have it their whole life. It just means yeah. they get extra support. I, I tell my therapist all the time. Our job is to put ourselves out of a job. Oh, Our job is that. to give the students or the parents or the elderly, whomever we're working with, the tools to apply themselves and then touch base with us. Absolutely love it. You, you don't want your client to be your client forever. You want them to be. No. A- and if they are, <laughs> then your goals are wrong. Right, right. <laughs> right? Um, I like that view on it. Well, so when you're intaking these these children, especially, what signs are you looking for? What is telling you, especially when it comes to, let's start here. Let's start with speech delays uh, in young children. Mm-hmm. What are common signs of a speech delay in a young child? Have you go, oh, we have some work so, to do together. Um, most children, you should, most children should have about 50 words be, be, around age one. And then it just, it's a snowball effect. By the time they're three, four, they should have close to a thousand. Oh, wow. And they should be combining them. So if they're one, they should have one word utterances. If they're two, they should have two combined. Doesn't mean they can't have more, but that's the basics. Gotcha. And it's also based upon their age on intelligibility. So obviously the person that spends the most time with them, they're going to understand very well. But as they get older, by three years of age, 75% of what they say should be understood by a a stranger. And by four, 100%. That's amazing. Four is 100%. I'm trying to think about all the four-year-olds I've interacted with. (laughs) And well, and if you think of that four-year-old age, that's also the beginning of phonemic awareness. So if you're misarticulating how you're saying things, then that means that you're also not making that awareness towards letter identification and sound. Mm. And so that's a lot of sense, a direct impact, not only on reading, but spelling, writing, all of the above. How young do you typically receive children for speech and language services? The youngest I've had is three weeks old. Three weeks. That was primarily for latching. Gotcha. Sustenance. Uh, we ended up being a tongue tie. We referred him to, oh, an wow. um, and no problems from that point. The, uh, the average age I would say is 
somewhere between two and seven. And two the two-year-old is referred usually by a pediatrician. Although the most pediatricians are kind of like, wait and see, let's see what happens. Most of the time, it's a parent that calls us and says, you know, they have an older brother, they have an older sister, and they just don't seem to be developing at the same stage. You know, what do we think? And we'll usually invite them in and give them a free consult, take a look at them and tell them what we think, whether you can wait six months, whether you should jump on it, any of the above. I love that. I like that you can give those options that you can provide that clarity for parents. I can't imagine how many parents would love having you on a speed dial just to ask these little questions regarding. So that's why they hire you. <laughs> yes, exactly. I had a parent that uh, showed up three years ago, uh, very concerned, you know, firstborn child, only child just wasn't saying a lot of words. She felt he understood everything. I invited her in. I totally agreed with her. I gave her some uh, steps, some things to do, brought him back in three months later, ended up seeing him for six months, once a week, and then again, let him go. Three years ago, I did all this. She still sends me videos of him. (laughs) She She probably sends me a video twice a year, just to say, you know, look at him. He's really blossomed and you were right. Or he just needed a <laughs> prompt and, you know, I was saying too much for him or it was really interesting. That's cute. Um, but sometimes a mother usually knows better than anyone else, whether something feels off. And I don't think as mothers, we rely on that enough. So my question regards just working in early childhood, Lucy and I, we both have worked with children of many ages. What about the parents that are reserved or nervous to bring their child to speech pathology? We've seen it time and time again. They don't want to put a label on their child or they don't want to take their child to what they might deem as unnecessary therapeutic services. What would you say to those parents that are not comfortable with being that close with with being that open with you about their child's problems. So, you know, we often tell parents that we don't treat a diagnosis. We treat the symptom and we work very closely, especially before age seven or eight with the parent on transferring all their skills over to the home setting. Cause our goal again is to not have them on caseload forever. And, um, so we want to put the power in the parents' hands. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that. Put the power in the parents' hands. That's a, uh... well, you know, it's so funny because I'll have parents say, well, I want to bring, you know, Johnny in next week for practice. And I'm like, you don't need to pay me to practice. That's why you're That's here. Good. So I'm going to, you know, I'm like, I have three kids of my own. The last thing I want to do <laughs> is pay someone else for something I can, I can monitor. Right, right. So I'm like, I need you to step up and I need you to do this. And then, that you know, you'll know. And they're like, oh. You've just addressed a few of the ways that you have identified uh, behavioral delays, speech delays. You've addressed the ways in which at the ages, what kind of services does your business, McLean Speech and Language Services, provide? What do you guys do? I I haven't found anything yet. We We don't. 
In fact, we just had um, an, an unusual referral just the other day from another speech pathologist. Oh, interesting. Who us up and said, uh, do you have anybody in your practice that is able to handle a cochlear implant? Hmm. Interesting. I was going to ask about um, hearing delays or, or hearing impairments in your field. Is that something that you work with commonly? Or I know you're a- a- ASL fluent, correct? Yeah, American Sign Language, yes. Uh, and in fact, we're we are affiliated with eight, ten different universities in the area. Oh, wow. And we have uh our first student from Gallaudet coming next year. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, so she'll be in the office uh paired up with no one way. of her therapists and doing one of her clinical rotations. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So I'm excited about that. Uh, and yeah. it was really interesting. When I interviewed her, I asked her why she chose Gallaudet. And she said, because that was one area that she had never experienced, which is sign language. Oh, oh good so for her. She took the challenge on herself. She's from Philadelphia. That's amazing. And you work often with hearing impairments. That is a big part of the resources you provide at McLean well, Speech and Language. It is. Uh, we have a... Um, ear, nose, and throat, ENT, otolaryngology practice about two floors below us <laughs> that we constantly refer patients to. And I was super excited because they did a renovation and they have a hearing booth now. So cool. we no longer have to look for a, a, a hearing place that can do children and adults. They have the ability now. That is they so also cool. uh, do nasal endoscopies, which <sighs> I many moons ago, I was certified to do. I haven't uh, explain what that is for listeners that do not know what a nasal endoscopy is. Well, I might make people cringe, but it's essentially <laughs> putting a tube up someone's nose and dropping it through the back of their throat. Oof. <laughs> and it has a light and a camera. And so we can look to see if you have vocal nodules, uh, vocal mm-hmm. impairment for any reason, reflux. Uh, so. A lot of voice disorders are often misdiagnosed because of reflux or misdiagnosed as asthma. How often do diagnoses of speech vocal issues become physical versus mental? Physical versus. There's a, that's a great question. I've Mm -hmm. never had anybody ask me that. Great one. Uh, There's a very close tie together. And in fact, we come within two classes of having a uh, second master's in psychology. It's hmm. fascinating. Women go through a lot of guilt when they have a baby that's born with a birth defect, whether it's cleft palate, spina bifida, uh, cognitive disorders. Uh, we have to counsel a lot of the caregivers to patients that have strokes, head injury, because Gosh. they're no longer the same person. Right. So we have to counsel a lot of them. And, you know, parents, you have a child with any disability, whether it's reading, writing, uh, speaking, vision, you have guilt. So we do a lot of that as well. I recently had a patient that I had been seeing off and on for about five years, an adult stutterer. And he got married. He and his wife had a child. Congratulations to him. 
Yeah, he was so thrilled that it was a girl because girls have a lower incidence of stuttering than boys. Do they really? Hmm. They do. Like boys have a higher incidence of syndromes, a higher, higher incidence of stuttering. They have a lot of high instances. Yeah. It's so high interesting stuff going on. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. his daughter, who's three, recently started showing signs of stuttering. And poor, poor dad. And, That's you know, stuttering is a typical thing between three and six years of age. But because he has a history, everybody was freaking out. And so we did a free consult with them. I Zoomed called with them several times. And the wife, unbeknownst to her, was kind of like, I've never met anyone who stuttered before I met him. And (laughs) I called him up the next day just to say, how are you feeling? Are you okay? And it it had nothing to do with his stuttering, my phone call, but it had everything to do with the psychological effect that he might be the reason why she stutters. I can only imagine. Poor guy. And yeah, it was really sad. And there's a high incidence as well of people with a disabled child divorcing. I unfortunately heard that statistic and we we addressed that in minute ways in an earlier episode because that this is for any listeners who are listening and are listening because they have concerns or worries about their own child with these problems I want to touch on that point that you made which is it's not your fault it's nothing that you can particularly address and you do the best that you can. And this is why we're having this conversation is there's people in this world that can help address these problems. Absolutely. My heart really goes out to that man. That's incredibly painful. As soon as you started that story, I thought you were going to say that the daughter was perfectly fine and nothing was wrong and it was not carried through. But in fact, she had well, her own. You know, and I think, you know, stuttering itself is very difficult. We where, all where does stu- that come from? Where does stuttering evolve? From? Well, we thought a- for many years that it was something brought on by women to their children, <laughs> pressuring them. And they even had it characterized back in the 50s of, of women that were uh, demanding, women that were cold, women that were educated because they expected their children to perform. And what they realized years later was that that was inaccurate. How miserable. And- what a terrible, right. like hysteria, how hysteria was a, a female. Exactly. exactly. And <laughs> oh what my they gosh. found now is there's actually a genetic component to it. Is there really? Huh. There really is. There's also a, so is stuttering physical or mental or a combination? Oh, Both. Okay. Well, there's also a neurological component. I've had plenty of patients who've had a stroke and then stutter, <laughs> but I think the difficult thing, and this goes back to your point of whether it's physical or mental, everyone stutters 3%. It's when you you go over that threshold of 3% that it makes a difference. But also it's the manner that you stutter. People generally will repeat words, but people don't generally repeat sounds or syllables. And then if you go back to my earlier comment, all children stutter pretty significantly, pretty worldwide in any language between three and six years of age. And so 
not drawing attention to it, taking the time to listen to them, not finishing their sentences for them, decreases that anxiety Mm. or the mental part of it that makes them more fluent. So what you're saying is the best way to treat a stutter is to encourage the slowdown, to encourage the listening of what they are trying to get out. Is that what you're trying to say? Yep. Okay. So just be patient. What is the difference between, I'm going to slow my words down. I feel like it's becoming psychological. What is the difference between stuttering and cluttering? I knew you were going to ask that. (laughs) Um, There's a, it's, it's a small difference. Uh, It's, it's hard to define and I could define it to for you in technical terms, but it really wouldn't, it wouldn't define it. I'm dying to know only because I haven't heard of cluttering until I looked at your website into which you guys separate the two of them in your definition. And I was, I was looking at that and I was like, cluttering, that's. Cluttering is something that came up really uh, in the last 20 years. And it it was, you were either a stutterer or you were not. Interesting. Interesting. It's complicated. I have some speech therapists that can't define the difference between the two. And, you know, I've had some patients that move in and out of one of the other. So it's complicated. So I wonder if you could um, tell me if this is true or not. This is a fun little pop culture fact I've heard about that Marilyn Monroe was a stutterer and had a speech impediment. And that's why she talked in the wispy voice that she did to overcome her speech. I don't know that. Apparently that's why she talked like this because well, she was and that, trying to. That is also, that is a technique for stuttering. Uh, um, the, there's one more. Um, Earl Jones. What is his name? The guy who plays Darth Vader. No, oh, I did that's, hear that one. Okay. That is, okay. Yeah. yeah uh, makes sense. A, there was also a famous country singer. Very curious now who it is. Uh, who was a severe stutterer. But, you know, in, in the speech and language field, one of the most famous professors in the field who wrote many books on stuttering was a severe stutterer himself. Makes a lot of sense. You have personal experience and then you can wrap around it. That's yep. amazing. How do you have any percentage or idea of how many people are affected by stuttering? I do not. Okay. I do not. Uh, there is a uh, one of the Giving Tuesday things back. There is mm. a stuttering foundation. Oh, very cool. So this person I was discussing earlier, uh, who's an adult, I recently signed him up to be a mentor for them. Because there's not enough people that admit. And I think everyone knows Joe Biden was a stutterer. Not I was. I didn't know yes. that. Is yes. he really? He is a stutterer. Yeah. Huh. Actually, now that I think about some of his speeches, I can picture a little bit of that. He's got a small lapse in the things that he says, or small overlaps, I should say. So that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, it feels like a lot of the most prominent speakers that we know of, there's a, not a lot of them. A few of them I can think of have had stuttering issues, and perhaps that's the coincidence is you work extra hard to make the speech that much more prominent. Oh, okay. Okay. Let's shout out a great movie. What is the movie that you absolutely enjoy that almost, I feel like all speech therapists love regarding famous 
political figure, famous uh, figurehead who had a huge speech delay or stutter and had to go and do a speech to rally his nation. Wait. It's got the word speech in the title. He was Queen Elizabeth's dad. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) Um, (laughs) King's speech. Yes. I love that movie. Oh, my gosh. What a good example. He had to get over it. <laughs> he had to do the country. That's, that was a great example of uh, a lot of times speech therapy is not necessarily technique. It's connection with your patient. Right. And that was the whole formative of the movie, right? Was that the guy, the therapist became buddies with the king, helped him through his yeah. issues. Now, the chemistry is huge. Yeah. If, if I have a parent call me, if I have a student, a parent call me about a student who's 11 years and up, the first thing I will ask the parent is to meet the student. Very nice. Because if the student's not wanting to be there or I'm not making a connection with, it's a waste of time and money for them and me. Makes sense. You just answered in many ways a question I had and I wasn't sure I was going to ask, which is, is there, you've, you've mentioned all of your adult patients. Is there a technical age limit on speech therapy and a point you said from birth to death, is there a point when, when it comes to speech delays, speech impediments, that it cannot be effective anymore. And unfortunately the elderly has a myriad of different Mm -hmm. disabilities, everything from stroke to ALS to, um, Parkinson's to dementia, to Alzheimer's, to cancer. Mm. You know, you can have head and neck cancer. Right. Uh, there's, there's a myriad of different disorders. And someone pointed out to me once as I got into private practice that once you leave the hospital, there are plenty of places that provide services to children, but not a lot to provide to the elderly. Hmm. No, I could see that there's tons of resources, but and I feel like that comes out to our conversation as well of who's looking out for the elderly. You know, that's a whole other subject, but right. there's plenty of advocates for children. There's not as many elderly advocates. So it's a, it's a mix. It's a mix. Yeah. Um, our students, we love our students all of our therapists or Orton Gillingham trained, which is the one of only two or three programs that are uh, evidence-based. Say, say that program title again. Orton Gillingham. Orton Gilliam. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. It's evidence-based programs to remediate reading disabilities. Oh, wow. So all of our therapists are trained in that technique that um, method and the main reason why is because language is the basis of reading you know one one area we didn't touch on is uh that most people kind of forget is that all the same structures you use to speak are the same things you use to eat so we have plenty of Patients that come to us, students that come to us, everything from as young as two with feeding disorders or tongue tie, they're not able to feed 
effectively, drink effectively, due to sippy cups, straws, mm. all that kind of stuff. Can you we, uh, go in a little bit more about that? How do you feel about sippy cups and straws and what I'm age not a big specifically? Fan. I'm not gotcha. a big fan. And I'm not a big <laughs> fan as well for the pre-made foods of the squeegee yogurts or the squeegee applesauces. Uh, kids these days are losing the oral structure and uh, coordination and musculature of those oral mechanisms. And so they have articulation disorders from it. That we is have, very interesting. Hmm. We have a lot of orthodontists and dentists that refer to us cool. uh, for our students with tongue thrust. And they have the classic signs of having the sounds R, S, L. Explain what tongue thrust is again, just for people who aren't aware as they listen. Tongue thrust is when your tongue is protruding past your teeth or lips when you're making the S sound. So it sounds ah, like a lisp. What you just said, that as you said, the S sound right there. So yeah. interesting, interesting. That's, yeah. Um, but it usually shows up because they are, they have a complete space between their teeth from their tongue in the wrong spot, not on the roof of their mouth. Well, and I'll just deviate from that point as well and go back to the sippy cups, the squeezies, the pouches. I have to say this is one thing that Lucy and I enjoy about working at Compass and at Reggio Emilia. It's very child-based and how they self-direct. We did an episode very early on regarding uh, fine motor skills and the ability to direct a pen in yes. regards to how they start at, in our one and a half year old room, the sippy cup is gone and the cup is given to them. They That's can spill as much as they want. There's towels at hand. It's better yep. to teach that early on. It doesn't help anything to have them grasping things so easily that yep. ease, it's not worth it. And so we, if you want to refer back to, I think it's episode four to our listeners, it's um, we go into great depth about how it's better to help them refine those skills as early as possible than making it as easy as possible. Something great Absolutely. about ease. Because it also helps feeding skills, like mm. using a fork, using a oh, knife. hugely important. Food. Yes. Right, uh, right. I, you know, the advent of sippy cups, the advent of these portable little box drinks, I think they're fine if you're on the road, but for everyday life in your house, you need to give them a cup, open mouth cup, and you need to give them spoons and forks and not their fingers to eat with only. I agree. Exactly on that point. We're not saying don't use the sippies. We're not saying oh, no, don't no. use the, because it's kind of like saying never, never use a screen. You know, it's like you, you need a break every now and then you need a break from the difficulties. It's everything in moderation. That's what it all comes down to. And there's just a point, what were we talking about? This was another harking on working in the art field with children. We're constantly using common household objects as artistic tools because it helps them get their motors ability ready. Let them use that plastic fork. Let them mess with that. You know, that, um, let's get a good example here. Get them a, you know, an early tool without great. That also helps language and memory development. Right, right. We, common. <laughs> we have our memory development by categories. So if you're teaching that a fork can be used in a different category, you're expanding their language development. Oh, I love that. Put that down as a little note here. I love that point, though, about 
making sure they're not using those easier tools. I did not realize that. I mean, we've all talked about the thumb sucking in the past season in regards to tooth structure, but honestly did not know about those other objects in regards to speech. Pulling, you know, food off of a spoon. Yeah. Takes, you know, takes oral cheek skills, lip skills. Do you notice people doing funny things with their mouths when you tell them this? Because I'm doing the funniest things right now as, as I'm I can't, like, mm, like, I can't tell stuff. you how many parents I've, I've worked with their kids and they're like, my tongue is not on the roof of my mouth. I'm like, it could be on the roof of your mouth. Um, I've, I've also had the, the funny incidents where we go to a, a party and someone will say, well, what do you do? And I'll tell them and they have no clue what it is. And, then and, you. So, and so they'll ask and then it snowballs and then inevitably one of them will drag a child in front of me. Oh no. What do you think about, you know, and you know, and the last thing you want to do is be diagnosing somebody right there, but you're kind of like, yeah, I think they do need, you know, (laughs) here's my business card. Come on. I I need to keep them on hand. Like, please. Um, Thank you. Oh my gosh. Is that, yeah, I can't imagine how, um, I mean, it just shows how valuable your work is, but that must be incredibly frustrating. Well, you know, and it's also, and you kind of hinted on this, the difference between a speech pathologist and a speech therapist, they're, they're interchangeable, but it's really your experience. I had a, a brand new referral two weeks ago from an otolaryngologist of a little boy with vocal nodules. He's seven years of age. And mom said to me, I must've made eight different phone calls before I found you. Because there are plenty of speech therapists. There's not plenty of speech therapists who treat vocal nodules. So you have to have the medical background. And even in my practice, there's only two of us that have that knowledge. The rest of them do not. They're developing it, but they do not. And it's the same thing with a nursing home. If you have a speech therapist in a nursing home, don't assume they can always treat a swallowing disorder. Hmm. Which so, can you elaborate on what a swallowing disorder would, would consist of? Yeah, so it could be younger as well. And this is part of the feeding issues that occur from reflux. Your feeding tube that goes from your mouth down to your stomach has a lot of bumps around along the way. You can have motility movements like trying to get it down there. You can have a pyloric valve at the bottom of it that goes into your stomach that is not acting properly. And so it opens when it should close and therefore you get reflux. And so kids that have a lot of reflux don't want to eat because they don't like that burning. Of course not. Yeah. Or the taste on the reverse effect. If you have a patient that has had a stroke, sometimes they have lateral paralysis. And so therefore they're aspirating or it's going into their lungs which then can cause pneumonia and death. So there's a lot of complications. You can do positions to change it. You can change the texture of a food, but overall it has to be managed one way or another. Do you have feelings that perhaps more speech therapists should be spending more time in a hospital setting? Or do you think that's just an unfortunate casualty of the educational? You know, I think it depends on what you like. It's really, and that's the beauty of the field. If you only want to work with kids in the school, it's there. 
You'll just if, work. Yeah. If you never want to work with a child and only want to work with elderly, it's there. And you have that ability to do it. Out of my speech therapist, I have one in particular who tells me all the time, she never wants to work with a swallowing disorder. She never <laughs> wants to work with a stroke patient. That's so funny. Just because she it's not her particularity or she just really does not enjoy she, it. It, it kind of makes her go woozy. Like Fair the, enough. The whole thing Fair of getting enough. into somebody's mouth and dealing with that. No, yeah. I, I understand that. I mean, she she and she's didn't a phenomenal go to medical school for that reason, right? It's like, right. why would you go... Why would she's you go a phenomenal be a dentist? Therapist. It's just not her 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 area of, of like wow, that's cool. Yeah, totally understand that. I can think of um, you know, this is a very small example, but I can think of a lot of teachers that might be listening to this and they love to teach, but man, they really don't like when kids throw up, you know, like that's oh, that's yeah. a, a small side part of the job, and it's really not a great time when that occurs. <laughs> When I was uh, working in the hospital system, but I had the most famous conversation with the physical therapist one day. Physical therapist, when you're in the hospitals, your job, your job is to get people up and walking. Uh, for and there's an important reason for it. Besides walking to to be walking, it's also for bowel movements, and so. Inevitably, you stand somebody up that's been laying down a lot and gravity takes hold. And so one of the one of the guys that I was working with, a physical therapist, we came down for lunch one day after being up on the floors and he's got a pair of cream colored corduroys that have splash marks all over. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm like, that is disgusting. And he looks at me and he goes, are you joking? He goes, you're every day in people's face, mouth, nose, everything. He goes, so he thought yours was worse. Yeah. He's oh, that's like, so funny. I would not want to deal with all the mucus and everything that you deal with. Oh, that's hilarious. I'd rather deal with exactly the latter there. I'd rather deal with the mucus and the spittle. Right? That's exactly so much better. I know I have, uh, I can't tell you how many times I, I'm introducing new textures to a, a child and it's not going well. And so I have to get in there and pull it out of pull the mouth. Out. Yeah. Like just yank it out because it's like, it's no, not. No, and that's again, it's, to anybody but, who has an issue with this, I do apologize. I don't understand the, that personal issue. It's, it's just the mouth. It's just the spit. Give me something below and I don't want to touch it. That's a whole it, different subject. I feel the exact same way, but the, okay, other, the other thing that we deal with that people don't usually think about is uh, tracheostomies. There are plenty of kids that are vent dependent that are in our school systems. Oh, oh. Trach, part of the swallowing mechanism is to lift and drop. And so the, mm. trach, the trach anchors it. So you have a higher incidence of aspiration or choking. So we oh. also have to work with patients like that. Oh, so, no, see, that going, makes me... Going back to the specialization... You know, there are plenty of us that are willing to jump in there and there are plenty of us that aren't. Fair. Um, so for anybody listening that wants to get into this field, bear that in mind. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or you can even go into teaching. Or, right. And so I was going to ask, do you offer school consultations? Is that something that you. So we have a contract at a, at a um, private school right now with students with reading disabilities, primarily. And um, 
we go to a couple of the Catholic schools in the area because Catholic schools uh, generally don't have one on staff. And so the parents and we show up and work with their students. Do most public schools generally have an SLP on staff? They do. They're required by FAPE, which is um, the, essentially the parents' rights to. I wasn't aware of this. That that's, is that. um, OT speech and. And. um, OT speech and PT. Oh, wow. Is that Fairfax, Virginia specific, or is that nationwide? Nationwide. No way. Oh, wow. But uh, your the goals are specific towards academic skills only. Gotcha. So gotcha, gotcha. Um, so you can refer them out to your. The school is not allowed to refer anyone. Not else. allowed to. Gotcha, gotcha. But um, it goes under FAPE, the Free and Appropriate Public Education Act, mm-hmm. and so if you show a divide between skill and performance. Like mm-hmm. let's say your grades are Fs, uh, but you're te- and you've got testing, then y- you can request a 504, which is accommodations or an IEP, individual educational plan. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that's uh, how often do you guys, oh, this is going to be an uneducated question. We may have to cut this. How often are you guys involved with the writings of IEPs or the involvement of creating an IEP? Is that something that you are? Rarely. Uh, Rarely. Well, in the sense that we don't create them, only the SLPs from the school creates them. If the parents invite us to the IEP meeting, by law, the parents are required to get the goals 24 to 48 hours beforehand, they usually pass them on to us. And then we will usually sit in on the meetings and, and suggest changes to the, to the goals because we try to replicate them at the office. So therefore the child can have more success at the school. When you worked in the school system for 10 years, so not only were you involved in the writings, of the IEPs, what was your title? working in the school system, were you still an SL, SLP? Yep, okay. SLP. Okay. And you were um, one school specific or, or district specific? I was one school specific. It's amazing. And I started off at the high school level mm. and then I went to the middle school. I'll cut this, but that was kind of a personal question because I did not, I wasn't too aware of how that stretched around. I feel like that says a lot about Fairfax County in of itself that they could keep that level. So Again, why the school district is so amazing. Right. I I will also say that one area that we also dabble in that most places and people don't realize is, and especially in here in Virginia, is um, we have an adult services contract. (laughs) So we work with adults 22 and over, 22 years of age and over. 22, very specific. In the state of Virginia, you're allowed to stay in public in the public school setting as long as you're not going for a standard diploma up until age 22. I didn't know that. After that, you, depending on what programs you go through, but you can go to what an adult services day program. So mm. 
The one that we provide services to has three levels. The lowest level is a four to one ratio, like four adults and one caregiver. These are usually uh, adults with behavior issues or wheelchair bound with not a lot of motility. Um, and they need more hands-on assistance. Gotcha. And gotcha. Uh, we work with the caregivers, which are the teachers, but they don't call them teachers. Gotcha. To give them work skills. Yes. And I remember a lot of your experience with the work skills programs when you, when I was in high school and how I was hoping you could mention some of the organizations that specifically reach out and hire these, these adults, these individuals. Well, there's a lot. It, there's a lot in the I'm, area. I'm thinking of one specifically, the uh, sweets to the, the desserts place. In, yeah. So one yeah. of my, former <laughs> students, uh, one of my former students, her mom, after she went through this program, her name was Cameron Graham. She was involved for years with an organization called Best Buddies. And the Best Buddies of DC had a uh, special event they held once a year that they paired them up with a chef in the area and they created desserts. And so you could buy a ticket and it raised money for best buddies and you could go around and taste all these wonderful Which, desserts. That is such a cool event. I feel like yeah. anybody would be envious to attend that event. It was yummy to begin with. Let me see. Do you know there. what this event was called? Or is called. I'm assuming they did a hiatus during COVID, as most. I cannot did. remember what the name of it. I'll was look called. into it. I'll um, cite it because that. I mean, that is with the best buddies and the White House chef would be a part of it. But more importantly, locally, Basins on Church Street in Vienna, Which, delicious. Anybody who's local listening, so good. I love Basins. So they paired up with my former student, whose mom then saw this skill and opened up called Cameron's Chocolates. And it's in Fairfax Circle. They they have a one-to-one ratio, meaning they for every disabled person they hire, they hire a non-disabled person. They have expanded their store. They ship chocolates. Organization concept is fantastic. Give your child the tools to greater success while providing others with the ability to have their own success. Fantastic. And in a tasty way, the whole community can enjoy. And they've been around for over 10 years now, correct? Oh, at least. Yeah. At least. Yeah. Man, I wonder if they're pushing on on 20, honestly. No, maybe not that long, but still, still. And Best Buddies itself has, it's a a worldwide organization. I believe Best Buddies was actually started by one of the Kennedys. Really? Mm -hmm. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised. I think you're utterly correct with that. I'm looking at that right now. So yeah, Cameron's Chocolates and Best Buddies, specifically Best Buddies of DC for anybody who wants to look into these two organizations. And again, we will cite all of these in the footnotes of this episode. Uh, I wanted to ask, you've mentioned how you help children with who are on the autistic spectrum, uh, how you've helped them with getting, getting them ready for life outside of school. How often do you work with children on the autistic spectrum? How often does your career at SLP align with that specific diagnosis? A lot, a lot. Um, There's a lot of students with autism that it affects them in many different ways for reading 
uh, it's primarily comprehension. It's affects them a lot for social skills. It's usually right. probably the number one reason why we get a referral. Hmm. Um, Which goes back to your whole point about how it's not just therapy. It's also not just speech therapy. It's also therapeutic in of itself. It's just, I can't imagine the impact you have discussing with them and discussing with students and discussing with your patients and having these intimate moments of conversation. It must be very and even our adults, impactful. Our, our, our adults with the diagnosis of autism. But I, you know, I think one of the things that we emphasize to them is that it doesn't define who you are. Right. I think sometimes uh, parents are worried that it will. Yes, very much so. Uh, I recently was waiting outside for a takeout order Sunday night. And I was talking to this, this other gentleman waiting for a takeout order. And he was telling me about how his, his son had autism and he got a perfect score on his SAT 32 and, but he could never finish college. And I said to him, but is he happy? And he looked at me for a second and he paused and I said, is he working? And he said, yeah, he's working for Amazon. And I said, is he happy? And he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, do you realize, I said, regardless of whether you have a disability or not, we all have the same dreams, which is to move out of our parents' house and be a contributing adult. Right. And I said, so maybe he's there and he is happy with what he has. Hmm. So, you know, as parents, we have high hopes for our children, right? But I think the hardest thing as a parent to do is to step back and realize that this might be where we are and they got to move on their own accord, not we're on our timeline. So that's one point I wanted to touch on as well as you've addressed multiple points throughout this interview that 65 to 70% of your students, of your clients are children, but majority of your conversation and feedback and discussion goes towards the parents. And it's one thing that drives me nuts talking to preschool teachers. There's a lot who say they work in the field because they like to talk to kids. They don't like to talk to adults. That can't happen. You have to have communication in all lines. And I find it so enthralling as well as comforting that you develop this important relationship with the client as well as with the parent or the caregiver bringing them in. It's wonderful because yeah. I can't imagine what a nice, like this random stranger or the woman that emails you every year since she's had you as a, as a therapist, they, they look to you as this compassionate source. You're not just the client's therapist. You're also the caregiver's therapist. Sure. So yeah. it's a wonderful role to play. It's a stressful role. I'm curious it is. It how, is. It is <laughs> how, how the speech pathologists uh, unwind, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's like yeah. an old uh, adage, you know, who's, who does the therapist go for therapy? Like it's, <laughs> I hope yeah, that. How does the speech pathologist it. unwind? Well, <laughs> you know what we do? Tongue we twisters. go to an event where we don't have to talk. Oh God. <laughs> So the yoga? movies are good, the theater is good. <laughs> Anything where we're not having to talk is usually it. That will have to be the title of your memoir is events where you don't have to talk. Like <laughs> when the talking stops. <laughs> you know, that what's that one? A hundred places to see before you die. 
Mine's going to be a hundred places to visit where you don't have to talk. Y'all, you guys will have to do those. You should take all of your staff on one of those. Um, oh, I don't. Those immersive saltwater theaters. Oh, yes. Have you seen yeah. these? <laughs> yeah. Which give me a little bit of claustrophobia, but I mean, <laughs> it's supposed to be dead. Apparently, you can hear your heartbeat. So it's uh, yeah. It sounds- yep. I I know those well. We have a lot of our head injury patients that do those. <sighs> really. Mm. For head injuries, that almost sounds counterintuitive because you could, well, I, I yep, guess that there's, a, there's a lot going on there. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of funny because we, we what were we recently talking about uh, with one of my clients? They had called me on a Sunday and said, is there any way you can come in and help blah, blah, blah with some project? This is a set of brothers that I've been seeing for five plus years. One can read anything, doesn't understand it. And the other one can't read anything and understands all of it. If you read it to them. Oh, wow. And, um, I was a lot of, uh, (laughs) I was like, I'll sure I'll put you in the office in 15 minutes or whatever it was that took me to get there. You know, during the pandemic, when everyone else closed down, we did not because, you have somebody with vocal nodules. You can't tell them to wait 18 months because it right. could be cancerous. You have a child who's not eating. You can't tell them to wait. You have students that are online in school. They can't access the reading material if they don't have somebody to work with them. And I remember how impressive that was during, uh, so shout out to you guys and of McLean Speech and Language, that you, not only did you keep working during COVID and the shutdown and the quarantine, but you guys pressed further during that time. I mean, you started the online classes, you started, uh, give me a quick rundown, you started a bunch of online um, services that were not privy beforehand. Can you, can you give a quick, we did, we did. And we, in the local communities of which a lot of people would argue were people that could afford to pay for services we offered in the local area. It's a difficult argument. That's it it is. It is. Um, I can also tell you though, for someone that tells me they can't afford me, my first question is what can you afford? And I've heard you say that many times before this interview as well. So it's an important piece for a child's life is to feel successful. And school is the only time in life where you have to be good at everything. Mm. So once you graduate high school, you don't major in something you don't enjoy or you don't feel confident in. So anyway, back to my point, um, we offered free services to anyone with an IEP That's for a fantastic. month because the schools were struggling to get online. And then we, we hit the summer. So we offered free services for a month and we probably had close to 20 different families take advantage of it. Good for them. I'm happy. That's nice that people could find the resource too. Yes, it was, we were blessed. We were lucky we could do it. Uh, But it was also really important just to give back to the community. Yeah. I love that. So again, Shout out to you guys, because it's amazing that not only have you provided these services as a whole to the community, but as well as the fact that you put that extra effort in 
I mean, I cannot begin to explain to anybody who didn't witness it firsthand the way that you guys did not slow down, but expanded during that time. Yeah. It was very impressive. It was nonstop. You still work nonstop. Still, we're still right now. Yeah, You're on average, what, six days a week, seven days a week of just go, on, go, go. Yeah. On average. I, I think maybe six instead of seven, but still. Like, there was many no. days when this woman was working seven days up until the late hours. I, I still... It, cannot believe you did what you did but look at where you are now look at where the the company is now so well, i will tell you no one goes in this field to become rich mm. <laughs> um but you do feel like you make a difference in everyone's life and like you said to anybody who wants to get into this field the flexibility because yes. while you might work all those hours it's because you chose to work all those hours and wanted to put the effort in i would That's argue right. that if you didn't want to you didn't have to work all those hours but you're not exactly going to get the results that you want to see or the yeah, clients that you want to totally see. Totally agree. I joke around with some of my students, especially my tongue thrust students. I'll say, mm. you know, we're not going to waste mom and dad's money nor my <laughs> time. So if you don't do the exercises, I'm going to know when you come back in. Oh, well said. You're going to get like two tries and then you're fired. And they look at me for a second like, what? You're going to fire. That's a lot of prep. No, I I like that because it's a lot of positive reinforcement. It's here's a reward. And if you want to earn it, you can earn it, but it's your own choice to get there. So absolutely love that. Um, We've been going for a bit now. I have a few more very in-depth questions. Do you want me to save those or it's AIT is the next round. And that's, you can go for it. You sure? Okay. We can. We've had quite a bit of sound time now. Each episode, we don't have a limit. We have two hours for each episode to, to post online. So we're not even close to that. Um, so you've, you've discussed all these different therapies that you offer, these consultations. I wanted to address one of the therapies that I personally have received from you and have very much enjoyed, which is AIT, Auditory Integrated Therapy, though I believe there is a word I'm missing at the beginning of that. The, no, yeah, auditory um, integration therapy. Auditory integration therapy. Fantastic. I personally underwent this therapy underneath your uh, tutelage, underneath your, your discretion with my husband. And I thought it was quite life-changing, both in how I interpreted my diagnosis and the effects during and after the therapy. Can you explain what AIT is so other people understand what I went through? Sure. So auditory integration therapy was developed by a guy in Europe called Guy Berard. And the whole premise was that it it was developed to reset the hearing, the process of hearing. So the, the hearing structure in and of itself, everybody sees the ear and they think that's it. And then you have the inner ear, which involves the tympanic membrane. And behind that is where most people will say, oh, I have fluid in my ear. But even further into that, and this is a uh, pub night question, you have three of the smallest bone body called the malleus, incus, and stapes. And those three bones oscillate or vibrate to then send signals to the cochlea, which is like a conch shell that sends it to the brain for processing. 
So that if I gave you the sound B, you would think, oh, it's a B. Or if I had grown up speaking Chinese, I might hear she and know exactly what characters that matched. So it it's all integrated. Berard developed a program of listening through attenuation or through sound frequencies to recalibrate your hearing. Not everyone is eligible. Not everyone is a prospect for it. But probably the most common term that has come, in, that has come out in the last 15 years is auditory processing disorders, hmm. APD. And so it can help things like that. It can help things like mis misophonia, which is a sound sensitivity. So dogs barking, loud, uh, echoey rooms like a basketball court, things like that. It helps disorders like those that I've described. The There are students, and I've got testimonies from parents that were not speaking. They went through the program and suddenly started speaking. It's amazing. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up is the stories that you have. First off, can we talk about how, I don't know if I want to use the word rare or specialized it is that you offer AIT. Yeah, there's not a lot of places. There's not a lot. Right, right. And you had to go and get specialized training to training offer this. In England, yeah. I got training in England. Uh, and then we had to present, I think it was 15 different case studies hmm. and and be formally approved. And there's a specific site called the Berard AIT group that goes into depth. And it's a website that provides uh, uh, research and more information onto it, on it. We don't seek patients out, but through word of mouth of patients that know about this process, they, they will call us up. And I probably get six evaluations a month. That's a very high amount. How many of those six usually result in therapy? Uh, well, through of those six that result in AIT, I would say maybe a two. Two. It's a little lower than I thought because well, it's very. It depends. There's a lot of factors that it depends on. Hmm. The youngest we do, we you know do the service for is three. Because oh, they don't have the ability to sit and listen. Right. That's one. Uh, two, we, I just had a young man come in on Monday who went through a full evaluation. I was not recommending AIT for him because but. his behavior language told me that he wasn't going to change anything. Gotcha. Number one. Number two. He was not about to give up the inner ear pods. And that is one negative thing that you can no longer do afterwards. So my and husband and I did this. And that was a very hard thing for us. And <laughs> you have to get used to them. We still use um, There is a vision specialist Ooh. that I work very closely with. Um, her name is Dr. Wendy Garson. 
And if you give me her contact details, I would love to talk with her. Uh, She and everybody always says, so if I get a student in for uh, a reading eval and just by certain behaviors they're doing, like holding the book a certain way, um, looking over when they write, looking to the side, things like that. I'll ask the parents, have you looked at their vision? And I can't tell you how many times they've said to me, oh, yeah, like, look at her. She wears glasses. We've taken her to an ophthalmologist. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, a vision specialist for reading. And people don't realize the tracking, convergence, how important that is for reading. I have one. It's interesting. I have one young lady I'm working with right now. Um, and this is how usually something starts. I had the parent call me and say that they had testing through the schools and they didn't believe the testing. And just as they thought they were going to get things rolling, COVID hit. Um, they couldn't get any support because nothing was put in place prior to. Right. But they had her her IQ as being really low and parents were like, there's this just isn't right. And so after having two conversations with the dad, I said, you know, bring her in. Let me take a look. She comes in. I had her put a 63 piece puzzle together. And tell me about it, because that's sequencing, that's organization, that's planning, like all the stuff. She did it perfectly. And she used words like perpendicular. That is not a low IQ. So I was just like, something is not right. And so I asked him, had you had her vision checked? Look, she wears glasses. Of course we get her vision checked. I'm like, no, 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 for reading. So I sent sent them over to Wendy Garson, who is an amazing person. Her husband's an ophthalmologist. She is an ophthalmologist for reading or for vision disorders for reading. Anyway, uh, she called me up two weeks later and said it's the worst case she's ever seen. No way. Oh, my when gosh. Her, when her eyes engage, her brain shuts down. Oh, my gosh. And so she essentially said to me, if you work with her for reading, you have to do it almost blindfolded. Like she cannot see it. What on earth is that diagnosis? I have no idea. That but, is insane. That's miserable. I, 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 that's so. So Wendy herself, go, uh, she's, she's retired. She's working two days a week. She's gone into semi retirement, but uh, at her practice, they do vision therapy. And sometimes that is tracking. Sometimes that's convergence. It's, it's pretty in depth. Um, I've never had it. I've never done it, but my office manager has had her children go through it. And um, this young lady is going through it and I'm working with her twice a week, not blindfolded, but I put a barrier in front of her so she cannot see what she's doing. And she has to do everything multisensory. Gosh almighty. So in many ways, is she interpreting the world as someone who's visually impaired would? Pretty much. Although she can see everything. It's just that when it comes to, using the eyes to read, it shuts everything else down. Wow. And, you know, ironically, you know, I can't tell you how many people are like, thank God he called you. 
Like what, what possessed him to call you? And I'm like, I don't know. See, this is kind of leading towards the point of why I wanted to do this interview. And I I would love to do a follow-up with you some other time in the year, but I think it's so important back to the, the jaunty little phrase I wanted to use of the best gift you can give your child is a diagnosis. It's, Working in a preschool setting with young children and with many parents who, especially during the COVID era where children are dropped off at a door and the parents do not interact with other kids of the same age group, they often do not understand when teachers urge them to seek services because they don't see a a lateral comparison. The part that goes with that is, is parents will often take children to pediatricians and the pediatricians being not wrong will say, Oh, you know, they're seeing them once a year. Right. And a lot of times a child will not interact for someone. They just see for 15 minutes once a year. Well, and seeing them once a year. And I hate to put this way, shout out to an amazing friend of mine because she is a pediatrician seeing once a year and seeing many children within a day span. Right. And so, you know, they'll say to the parent, well, if, you know, if you're concerned, then you should find find someone to take a look at that. Most parents don't know what that means. Right. Not you a- know, most, I mean, to be quite frank, I didn't know what a vision specialist was until I started working on my PhD in reading disabilities. I, I, hope, I, I hope that's what this episode does for people is that they listen to it and they think to themselves, Maybe it's and at, back to your point earlier. If it's not you, it's just biology. It's just psychology. It's right. not what you're doing to a child. It's not a detriment against a parent to go seek services. All it can do is help. There's, right. It's and the the forms are there. But I also say that knowing that even in an area as lovely as Northern Virginia, we do have a hard time with services around here. Child find is overworked, and that's that's the most popular service in Northern Virginia for free uh, childhood evaluation. And, and and speech pathologists are yeah, are far and few, right? Shortage, yeah. Mm. Child find at this point does not even use speech pathologists because they can't keep any on staff. Oh, I believe it. Perhaps this episode is an advocacy for two points to encourage parents listening to go and get their child diagnoses that they fear that there is something that needs to be addressed. And to encourage listeners who are thinking about pursuing a career in speech pathology to do exactly that. <laughs> Pursue it if that sounds of an interest to you. I mean, you've it's given a great so many good deal. feedbacks. You will never like be it. bored. <laughs> Never, never be bored, never be without a never. job or well, I mean, it's relatively speaking. No, never be without a job. Yeah. <laughs> 25% of the population at any given time needs a speech pathologist. How much again? 20? 25% wow. of the population, not of wow. the area. And I mean, and that's birth to death, wow. right? So, no, you you know, you talked about us moving overseas and, and working overseas Prior to us moving, I had no idea, like, if I could even work overseas. And I go overseas to find out that America has the highest qualifications to be a speech pathologist. Hmm. And we're also considered to have a neutral accent. So you go to a place like England, and they don't want somebody with a South African accent teaching their child phonics. 
they don't want somebody with a Cockney accent teaching a London proper accent. Mm. So I have always wondered though about the American accent is how it does sound neutral in the way that we phonetically reflect on sounds and syllables. It's yeah, nothing too harsh. So are there any other, this might be a very wide reaching question, but I'm curious now, any other languages that fall into um, a neutral sounding accent or a, I don't know. I haven't done enough looking into that to know specifically, but I do know that if um, if I have a bilingual student come to us and the parents uh, if the parents say to us, yes, the teacher reports they can't understand them. The first thing we ask them is, can you understand them in your language? Right. Because if you're having speech and language difficulties, it's not isolated just to one language. If you're making this the misarticulations in one language are making them in all of them that you speak. That's fascinating. And the comprehension piece as well. Um, I think people too quickly get hung up on our profession as speech therapists. There is a language piece of it that is super important. And it's no different than an ear, nose and throat doctor. Right. You just, just because you need a throat doctor doesn't mean you can't go to an ear, nose and throat doctor. You go to right, right. It all goes hand in hand. Hmm. I'm curious. Do you have a preference? If you had the ability to, would you prefer to hire a therapist or work with a therapist that is bilingual or multilingual for the sake we, of them having? So we have three therapists that are bilingual. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, Spanish English or one is Spanish English. Um, I am American Sign Language and Japanese. And uh, we have another one who is, I believe, French. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and it, ironically, we get a lot of students from the French school hmm. in Washington. Which part into it, which is, again, why I brought up the earlier question about ASL in line with speech pathology, because somebody might argue if they heard those two conjoined, how on earth does that go together? When you, well, and, you know, when we talk about our, our adults with disabilities, that program I told you we provide services to, one of the things that we do is we, we do sign language classes. Hmm. And I got, I got uh, a parent of one of the adults one time say, why, why does my son need to participate in that? And you know, our simple answer was, is because his peers, some of his peers sign and wouldn't you want him to communicate with his peers? Well said. So, you know, we often have parents of a child that's not speaking. One of the things we do is we implement some kind of basic sign so that the behaviors go down and they're able to communicate in some way. And Research shows you supplement those in. The minute the language comes in, the sign goes away. They don't retain it. They don't. Con- they don't use something they're not going to be effective with. I didn't realize that. It's interesting because I think so, it's so. In- so, how do you feel therefore about the extended use of uh, infant sign language? Oh, I don't have any problems with it. Okay. No, just uh, you know. I, if you wanted to go to the basic form of that, we respond to gestures all the time, right? Right. If a kid is shaking their head, we know it means no. If the, if a kid is pointing to an object on um, 
on the top shelf. We don't just sit there and say, what is the name? What's the name? What's the name? We we go, oh, so you want the car. Okay. Because you're, again, you're expanding their vocabulary, right? Right. Um, so that is a form of sign language. It's not Gestures. an exact form. Yes. Mm. Gestures, definitely. And it builds that social language skill too, which, you know, we may be building vocabulary for academic purpose, but once you get out of formal schooling, your social skills is what's going to get you fired or hired. Right. Oh, well said. Well said. It's a good thing that people should know. Again, back to this whole relevancy of it goes beyond just your ability to speak with the therapist or to communicate via yourself. It's these long-term skills as well, these long-term social skills. How often do you guys provide um, speech and language services in relation to behavioral issues, not just speech? It's integral. It's integral. Okay. It's integral. Uh, If you have a child that is language delayed and they're not speaking, the Sometimes the very first sign uh, is the school reporting to the parent that the child is hitting, yelling, screaming, biting, crying, uh, because they can't, they don't have the words. Right. I was going to say for many people that aren't, we've had a lot of listeners who talk about this in plentiful, but if you're not familiar, biting is usually a huge sign of that language, not being able to communicate. So you're communicating through a physicality. Right. So it's just angry, right? You're yeah. Angry. It's a pretty base point. <laughs> you know, we tell the parents all the time, this is a form of communication. It's right. completely normal and it's okay. We just need to substitute it with something else. Right. Uh, so do would you have any, you don't have to answer this question. If this is a bit loaded, we're talking about the holidays right now. And I've heard this joke recently that a lot of this is the season of undernapped and overwhelmed children, not the season of joy. And do you have any tips for parents to work towards behavior management during this busy season? Those who have kids that are overwhelmed. Plan that downtime. Mm. Plan that downtime. Plan those quiet moments. They don't have to be naps, but you can take quiet moments. Teach your children now mindfulness. Just that moment of just doing nothing instead of back to back to back to back. It doesn't have to be three hours. (laughs) It could be 20 minutes. When you guys were kids, we uh, we used to have quiet time. We didn't call it nap time. But it was calm down time. It was the. Yeah, it was focus and calm down. I'm into, I was going to bring this point up and I might have brought this up in one of our most recent episodes, but I, I thought you'd find the story interesting. We were, Evan and I, who both enjoy reading and for small context, my husband loves reading so much. He got sent on an international trip because he read so many books. And to me, reading is a joyful thing. We were talking with a bunch of our adult friends. We're all in our late twenties to which one of them expressed to me, they were surprised that I was reading a book leisurely as an adult. And I expressed that, yeah, that's, that's what I like to do. It's relaxation of these six friends, five out of the six said that they hate reading now as adults, except for journalistic articles. They're all in research fields because they were taught that reading was a weapon when they were kids. 
So they read as punishments and they did not read for enjoyment because that was their, it wasn't a calm down time. It was a punishment time. It was go well, read a book if you're being bad. I thought that no, was and so the fun, sad. It is sad. And the funny part about it is the way we punished you guys was to take your books away. Exactly. It's a very different mindset. And I'm at, I was, to me, that was always a normal thing was calm down. And then here's a book to help you calm down. It's not a book because you're being bad. It's a different wording. It's a different way of intruding that. And I love who I am because of that. I love who he is. And I was really sad to hear that. And in fact, one of those friends, I'll shout her out. I won't say her name. She's a doctor now. I think you know who I'm talking about. And I asked her, I was like, there's no way you don't like reading. All you do as a doctor, all you have to do is read. She goes, "I, I read because I have to. And I was like, that is, that was sad to hear. I was like, I did not expect that answer. So I don't know. So to all those parents out there, don't weaponize the reading, use it as a tool for reinforcement. So yeah, that was, um, that was surprising, but I like that cool down period. Well, um, I don't know if this is spoiling things, but our very last day of, uh, our giving advent calendar for the 25th is we were, you know, talking about give love to others, give a present, something big, and it's take a moment to yourself. That's what we ended up choosing for that day. Just take a moment, self-reflection, self-care, because we all need a cool down moment. So to the parents and kids, I love that advice. Take a cool down, take a second, take away from it all. And last question, is there anything you would like to tell new old parents, any advice you would like to give for those seeking or finding speech and language services? You know, follow your gut instinct. Follow your gut instinct. If you think your child has difficulties with something, it doesn't hurt to get it sought out. Um, call the place up. Ask them. I it the the vision specialist mm-hmm. I was just speaking to. We were. Uh, she asked me. She said, "Do you know much about hearing aids?" And I said, "I I I know the basics." And she said. Um, you know, what's your opinion? And this is a vision specialist, like, right. right. She's like, what's your opinion on getting the cheapos or like the high powered ones? (laughs) And I said to her, what would you tell a patient to getting the CVS glasses or the ones made for them? Hmm. And she said, very good point. And I said, so tell me there are different types of hearing losses. Is it sensory neural? Is it conductive or is it mixed? Mm. And she said, I don't know. And I said, that's what you need to find out. And then she said, well, I'm looking at Costco of getting my hearing uh, aids there because they're cheap. And I says, well, so call them up, tell them what you have, see what they say. If they can't answer your questions in depth, then you know, it's not the right fit. And she goes, Okay. I have to say, I wish there was, you know, how, when you're looking up a physician, a therapist of your, your caliber, and you're trying to figure out who's the right fit is, and it's ratings or doctorates backgrounds. I wish there was a format to input which professional connections that they had, because one thing I've taken away from this interview is how many other professionals, you know, dentists, um, hearing specialists, you know, this wide array of adjoining specializations. And that's so important. It's so, I feel like there's a million people who could be listening to this, hearing that you took a call from a 
hearing specialist as a, a vision specialist. Sorry, a vision specialist as a hearing specialist, and that you worked with them to figure out an answer. I feel like that would bring so much peace to people who are nervous about hiring a specialist, but knowing they're getting all that input. That's the kind of specialist you want. If you the one that if you just if you just have the specialist that's like bring them in, we'll charge you, you know, 150 bucks, blah, blah, blah. That's not the one you want. Right. You know, uh, anyone can give a standard. Why well, not anyone? You have to be licensed. <laughs> but any, you know, you can give a child a standardized test. But it's the person that can take a child that cannot take a standardized test. I just had right. a two-year-old three weeks ago that we assessed. I couldn't get a baseline on any of our standardized tests. But did I know where to start? Yes. And. You know, I said to the mom, I I can write a summary of our appointment, but I cannot give you any test scores, but I do know what's going on. And that was all she needed. Fantastic. So call the office. I mean, you know, I talk about my office manager being awesome. The reason why she's awesome is because she's had kids with disabilities. She's she could be a therapist herself. The way she quizzes these parents is amazing. Mm. I'll call her up. And I would say probably once a week, she's told me about a a conversation she's had with a parent for an hour and a half. Oh, wow. And this is her goal. That is so relaxing. It's not what I'm looking for. That's so putting the mind at ease. I mean, well, and it's what you want as a parent. If you have a doubt, you're probably right. Right. And so bounce it off of someone. You know, it's like having that mold that looks funny on your arm. You don't want to wait two months to go in and see a doctor thinking the whole time, oh my God, is it cancer? You want and to be able I, to I feel like that's a big problem in the healthcare system that we have right now is a lot of people are wary to go get checked out because they're afraid of being admonished for yes. addressing those fears. And yeah. I, I like that you address your office manager because that is a big aspect too. It's not just the therapist in an office. I feel like we need more of these amazing, you know, office manager, dental assistants, uh, you know, visual special, visual assistants that that answer the phone and help with those admitting questions and put the mind at ease. That's such yeah. an important part as well. So I can't tell you how many times she has shot me uh, someone's phone number and said, I need you to call this parent. Mm. And that's fantastic. And I do it just because, and you know, sometimes they don't ever come in. Sometimes they do, but it's sometimes I'll send them research articles, Mm. but it's sometimes you just need to be heard. And I feel like that is something people can take away from listening to this episode to anybody who's thinking about seeking speech and language services. This is a good you're a great candidate to listen to. You're friendly, you're involved. You have great stories about the connections you've kept with your patients. I think this is what people want and need to hear is that they can have that nice connection and they can have that friendly out the outcome that they desire. So yeah, outcome and income. Honestly. You should be seeking someone that has your child first and that child could be an adult or toddler. Um, and be willing to talk to you about it and not just say, okay, session done. We're done. 
I can't imagine how much that would put somebody at ease to actually have a conversation after their child's therapy rather than a quick turnabout. My therapist and I talk all the time. If we can't get a child to do something outside of our walls, we have failed. Because we can, we've been trained. We can get them to do what we need to do. To, to get them to do it at home, at the school, with grandma, that's another story. Right. And that's, that's what's going to make a difference. Well said. Let's all take this to heart and let's keep this in mind that the best thing you can do for yourself and your child is to just seek the advice of others and seek additional services. You don't have to stop at being concerned. It's Yeah, and based upon what you guys are doing, you know what? January is a new year. Turnover. Exactly. <laughs> and tune in next week. We will be discussing how to address goal setting and resolutions with your child for the new year. So we've already recorded that episode. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll let you go, mom. I really appreciate this. Let me sign off real quick. Thank you for listening to this episode. This has been an amazing conversation with Kim Heide, a licensed speech and language pathologist or therapist, technically therapist right now. Um, and again, <laughs> technically both go ahead and please check out her services under mclean speech and language that is mclean speech and language services it is a great resource and a lot of these questions that we talked about today are easily addressed on their website with a lot of clear formats for the services they offer as well as faqs on the issues that they most commonly address this has been an amazing conversation uh mom i will talk to you later all right love you Love you. Bye.